And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Keith Law. Welcome to episode 89 of The Keith Law Show. My guest this week will be Dr. John List, an economics professor at the University of Chicago, to talk about his new book, The Voltage Effect. For subscribers to The Athletic, I did have a draft blog post last week outlining uh, notes from my personal in-person scouting of multiple top prospects for this year's draft class, including Andrew Jones's son, Drew Jones, and Termar Johnson, two of the leading candidates to go first overall in this year's draft class. I will also have a minor league scouting notebook at some point later this week, weather permitting, as I record this in my kitchen on Monday afternoon, it is raining and disgusting here. That's the technical term, but it's supposed to be better tomorrow. And if things work out, I'll actually get a pretty good double up high school player in the afternoon and then a Wilmington Blue Rocks game that night. If you're looking for more content from me, check out my Twitter feed at Keith Law. I'm on Facebook. If people use Facebook. I feel like you have to be like 40 or older to use Facebook at this point, but I'm still there because I am 40 or older. Emphasis on the older. I'm at Keith Law there. Mr. M.R. Keith Law on Instagram. If you want to see some non-baseball stuff from me, you can also find me on my personal website, meadowparty.com slash blog. My guest today is Professor John List. He is the Kenneth C. Griffin Distinguished Service Professor in Economics at the University of Chicago and the author of the new book, The Voltage Effect, How to Make Good Ideas Great and Great Ideas Scale. Professor List, thank you so much for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me, Keith. So first, just give us a sense of what you mean by scale. The key word, I think, in the book is scale and scalability. And the main thrust of the book is how to figure out which ideas can scale, which ones can't, and then how to scale those ideas that can, whether you're talking, I think this applies in the business world. I think a lot of this applies in the sports world as well. Right. Absolutely. So I think about scale as if you find a result in the Petri dish or in the small, can your idea scale to different people in different situations? And when it does scale, does it have the same level of voltage that it did in the Petri dish. So that's, let's, we'll talk about that word as well, too. You talk about voltage, and it's a little buzzwordy, definitely, but also <laughs> like a little bit of a physics nerd, too. So I sort of, I get it. Um, and you know, to me, that is one of the more difficult things, uh, more difficult concepts in the book to apply. It seems like to apply in the real world, obviously, you have experience doing this, but figuring that out is a little bit of a, um, you know, you've, you're, it's data-driven, it's evidence-driven, but there's a little bit of a leap of faith involved here as well. So again, just can you explain yeah, a little bit about what yeah. this voltage concept is? No, absolutely. So I, I would say the first law of scaling is that there is a, there will be a voltage drop. And what I mean by that is I try something out in the small. It looks great. I then expand the idea 
it looks a little bit less great. And what I mean by that is it loses voltage. It looked really good right away. And we scale it, it doesn't look so good. So now the book is essentially a summary of the five major reasons why we lose voltage when we go from the small to the large. And it really starts with false positives. And what I mean by that is it looked great, but you scaled really, really fast and you should have never done it because <laughs> it never had voltage to begin with. This happens all the time. And so that's that's a perfect lead into the first example I wanted to talk about from the book. And I will say to listeners too, for folks who've read my second book, The Inside Game, there's a, a wonderful, not, over, not even overlap, but I feel like the end of my book leads very well into the beginning of your books. You're talking about, about a lot of the fallacies right. that sort of lead us astray in decision-making and you expand on a lot of those. And there's one that I just love because I'm old enough to remember the Arch Deluxe at McDonald's. <laughs> um, and remember, and as a kid, I was definitely team Burger King, not team McDonald's anyway, but you couldn't, you couldn't miss it. They sat when McDonald's launched a new product it was saturated, right? Exactly. We had a few network exactly. channels. The advertising was pervasive. Of course, I watched a lot of sports as a kid, and that was where they were advertising. And the Arch Lux was a huge flop for folks who don't remember it. It was one of several attempts that the massive fast food chain made to try to move upscale from the signature quarter pounder at Big Mac products. Where did they fail? And how yeah. can those lessons help us with seemingly unrelated initiatives like the parallel you draw to public health efforts? Yeah, no, absolutely. So. I'm a McDonald's guy. So if anyone from McDonald's is listening, please send the uh, <laughs> the gift cards to me at the University of Chicago. So look, um, late 90s, the CEO of McDonald's decides we need a new sandwich. We have to go beyond the Big Mac and the Quarter Pounder and the cheeseburger. And his idea is let's introduce the Arch Deluxe. Now, when you look into where were his data or where was the evidence? Essentially, it was from focus groups. So think about it. You receive an invitation. Hey, Keith, would you like to come in and try our new burger? Come into the lab and try the new burger. You have a, first of all, a big problem because the only people who will come to the lab will be McDonald's lovers and probably burger lovers. Yep. Okay, so the, the first rule is, this is a non-representative sample. That's sort of obvious. We should all know that and not generalize beyond that sample. Now, the second problem that McDonald's didn't recognize was that what are the incentives for people who come into the lab? So you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, the burger's okay. McDonald's says, will you buy for $2.99, $3.99, $4.99, $5.99? Your incentives are to say, yes, 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 yes. Now, why is that the case? Think about option value. In stock and bond markets, we have something called options. What that means is if you own it, you have the right to purchase the stock in the future at a given price. We pay real money for that in financial markets. But think about what the focus group person is facing. Wow. I might as well say yes, because if they introduce it, it's a free option in the future. Mm -hmm. I'm not obligated to buy, 
but I could buy it. So why not say yes? And that's in many cases, people don't recognize it's not representative. It's also a free option for people who are saying yes, they don't understand the incentives. And because of that, McDonald's rolls this out nationwide based on focus groups. And that CEO lost his job. He fundamentally lost his job because he did not recognize the focus groups are not the slice of pie that he needed to change the world. Now, this example is a story that is always done by governments, by firms. They don't fully understand the slice of the pie that they're going after. Do you find... I mean, focus groups have existed forever. I remember us talking about them when I was in business school, and that's 20-something years ago. Um, (laughs) And yet it feels to me they haven't lost their popularity. And I I feel like you you talked about the selection bias. There's also the the natural inclination of people to just tell you what they think you want to hear, which was always my issue when I worked for the Blue Jays a long time ago, too. They they loved focus groups, and I would try to make that point. They're telling you what they think you want to hear. They want to make you happy. And that's not necessarily the kind of data. It's certainly not the objective data you're hoping to get from a focus group. Do you you find people still are – like your clients, companies you work with, are are they still reliant on focus groups to that extent? I would say yes and no. So focus groups are seductive in the sense that they're low cost. Right. And and they're easy to get data. And a lot of times people misunderstand that all data aren't objectively good data. Now, when I say yes and no, so I I used to be the chief economist at Lyft. And I I just quit about a month ago. And I'll I'll be starting as a chief economist at Walmart in a few (laughs) weeks. Okay. So at Lyft, we used focus groups to get a a first understanding of a phenomenon, but we never stopped there. We went ahead and tried it in a small market to make sure that when the stakes were real, were the results also the same? And if you use focus groups in that way, is an initial discovery that leads to more data collection, I think you're perfectly fine. You just can't use focus groups as the beginning and the end of your decision-making process. Yep. That makes perfect sense to me. More data. It's great if you want to use that to design the survey. Exactly. Then that makes that exactly. absolutely makes sense. Exactly. One of the other fallacies that you talk about, or, or I guess I should say um, your obstacles that uh, companies face or anyone faces when trying to figure out scalability, you talk about the spillover effect, which, yeah. and you mentioned this, it, it really uh, lines up with the economic concept of externalities, positive and negative externalities. But there's one thing you talked about that really resonated with me uh, as a baseball writer too, this concept you talk about of resentful demoralization, uh, where it affected employee performances in multiple studies, even affected, you had some personal experience with this. Right. It really seems to apply to baseball because we have extremely wide discrepancies in player pay at the major league level and at the minor league level in player bonuses. You have guys who got bonuses of up to seven or eight million dollars playing alongside college seniors who got a thousand bucks. And I have often heard people within player development, people within scouting question, is that affecting players' performances or affecting clubhouse morale? So can you explain that concept of resentful demoralization to us? No, absolutely. So so I just want your listeners to think about you look to your right and look to your left. And if those two 
you believe are equally as productive as you, but they're making more money, Mm -hmm. that's going to make you feel bad. And that's essentially resentful demoralization. It's looking at your peers and asking yourself, how am I doing relative to them? And if you feel that you are unfairly treated, that alone will importantly affect your productivity. Now, in many cases, economists and lay people, a lot of times we say, well, look, you're making enough money. You're you're making enough money to have a good life. You're making enough money to do well by your family. You should be perfectly fine. But the behavioral economics behind it is that in many cases, people think in a relative sense, how am I doing relative to Joe? How am I doing relative to Jane? And that, in a nutshell, importantly affects our effort and our ultimate productivity. So for sure, this is happening in baseball. It's happening in life. Why? Because we're all humans. And humans are a species that has evolved to think about terms in relative. If I'm faster than you, the saber-toothed tiger is going to get you, not me. (laughs) I'm perfectly fine. It's about relatives in many cases. So tell me if I'm taking this a little too far, but obviously there are moral arguments against gender pay discrimination, racial pay discrimination. We know there's a ton of research on the wage gap between men and women in the workforce, even when you equalize for work and for hours. This seems like a pretty rational argument against that kind of pay discrimination. Not that we should need that, but let's face it, we probably do. Do you agree with with that, that we see, if we see this performance gap, it's an argument for equalizing pay? Oh, 100%. So I, I've done a fair amount of work in gender diversity and inclusiveness. And you're right. The frontline argument is it's just the right thing to do. So we should do it. However, when you're working inside a firm and that firm is doing everything it can just to survive, It puts moral arguments on the sidelines, and it's trying to do well by its shareholders and its employees. You can remember Milton Friedman said a long time ago, the business of business is business. However, when you start to take account of these behavioral phenomenon, the business of business of business is now you do well by your employees and treat them fairly and pay them appropriately that's good business. So now we've moved from an equity argument to an efficiency argument. So now even the firm that is just barely scraping by and trying to make it, they will want to do this because it is good for their firm and good for their shareholders. Scientific evidence is mounting in that favor. And I think that's where we will end up, which is a nice place because It's nice when efficiency leads to the same place that equity pointed you to. That means the world's getting to be a better place, which Keith, you and I can both appreciate. Yes. I I admire your optimism. I'm not sure I'm quite there yet in believing we'll get there. We'd like us to get there. (laughs) I'm uh, I'm an internal optimist. So I I, I like our direct. Look, look, I like our direction. I I like the sign of the first derivative. (laughs) Yes, that should always be positive. so you talk also about uh, when scaling, the you know, costs obviously increase as you scale up in most endeavors. And there you're trying to figure out how our returns 
increasing at a rate that's, if not necessarily commensurate with the cost, that it's at least justifying the cost increase. And reading that section, um, I kept thinking of the balance that teams are trying to strike now. And I know you've worked a little bit uh, in baseball on baseball topics too, where teams are saying, well, we need more scouts. No, we need fewer scouts. We need more R&D people. And trying to figure out sort of what's the appropriate balance between the two. But I think also figuring out when do diminishing returns set in, right? You don't need, clearly you don't want to have four scouts covering the entire country, which the Astros did up until this year. But if you hired 40 area scouts to cover the draft, Canada, the United States, Puerto Rico, that's probably too many. You're probably not going to get the benefit from that. Um, so scaling is not indefinite, not at least in other in all businesses or in all endeavors. So what sorts of things do you advise people to look at when trying to figure out sort of how far do we push? How far can we scale before those diminishing returns set? Yeah, no, that, that's, a, that's a great question. So one first thing that I, I make the point about in the book is that unique humans don't scale. <laughs> so if your initial success is due to, <laughs> as Keith looks at himself, <laughs> I wish this, <laughs> I wish our listeners could have just seen what Keith just did. <laughs> but <laughs> I just said I was unique. I didn't say I was good, but I'm, I think I'm unique. <laughs> You're certainly unique. Absolutely. So, so look, I, I, I go into a long discussion about restaurants and about chefs versus ingredients. A lot of restaurants have tried to scale mm -hmm. and a lot of restaurants have failed. The ones that have made it, their initial success was due to the use of ingredients that they could replicate at scale. So when they go from one restaurant to a thousand, they can still buy those ingredients at a good price. Now, the restaurants that typically fail fail because the initial success is because of the chef. And they go from one restaurant to a thousand. That chef can only be at one restaurant, of course, cooking. But a lot of times that unique chef says, well, I can teach others to be like me. Mm -hmm. They can't. That's a fool's errand. And if you try, it just won't work. So if you think about scouts, Scouts are the same way that if you have a really good one, it's very difficult for them to teach others. But what you should do is ask yourself, what are they good at? And what I found looking at the Sox scouting data is that some scouts are good at college players. Some are good at pitchers. Some are good at high schoolers. That's their comparative advantage. That's where they should be scaling to. A lot mm -hmm. of times what I see is scouts trying to cover areas that they're not particularly good at, and other scouts would be better at doing that particular job. So I think when you're talking about scaling is, first of all, recognize good humans don't scale, unique mm -hmm. humans don't scale. Secondly, understand comparative advantage. Where is this scout good? What, what position players, what ages? And then third, allocate them allocate them appropriately, but use machinery and data and artificial intelligence, which is my specialty with the SOX, use those insights to complement scouts. A lot of times scouts get their hearts beat a little bit faster when they hear data and Moneyball because they hear replaced. And this is labor-saving technology. 
In our data, that's not what we find. It's not man versus machine. It's man and machine because they have specialties at different parts of the scouting process. The machine can importantly complement humans and humans can importantly complement the machine. And that's important for clubs to realize. Yeah, I think that's a and the best clubs have realized that to to follow up that that you know the Dodgers and the Rays are two of the clubs. Absolutely. I would actually put the Yankees in this as well. The Yankees too. Where they they have large scouting staffs and they have large R and D staffs, and they're integrated. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, they, I know. Obviously, it's part of my job. I know scouts with pretty much every club, and I will say, scouts who work for those clubs tend to um, certainly they don't have that uh, antipathy towards R and D. And they speak the language of R&D more. You can see how they've integrated the uh, processes and the ideas across in both directions. Honestly, you talk to R&D people and they're speaking in scouting terms. And so that's how you're getting – I mean, to me, that is the ideal way to maximize your return from both groups where you're I – th- you know, I would like to think they have the right number of people in each, but also they've really integrated their operations too. So neither one is seeing the other as a threat or as 100%. unnecessary specifically. And I think their results bear it out for all three of those clubs for certain. Absolutely. You know, a lot of other clubs, though, are, are more resource constrained mm-hmm. and, and they have to have a little bit smaller um, scouting staff or maybe a little bit in, of an inferior data staff. But on the data and machine side, that's something that really can scale because it doesn't take you more time if you have twice as much data, as long as you can download it in reasonable ways. That's a very scalable exercise, whereas people, it's a little bit harder because as you double your staff, of course, you're roughly doubling your cost. Yes. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. I wrote about the sunk cost fallacy in my second book and refer to it often in my baseball writing because there's still we still see all the time teams don't seem to recognize it, particularly when you've got an overpaid older player who maybe shouldn't be playing or shouldn't even be on the roster anymore. You mentioned this uh, in a more in a broader, more business oriented context. Just a big reason people have a hard time quitting. You sort of speak in defense of quitting things, not always, but uh, quitting endeavors that aren't working out. You also mentioned a second reason, the one I'd like to ask you about here, which is ambiguity aversion, which, I, again, sort of a big term that I think everyone will recognize as you explain it. So tell me, tell us what ambiguity aversion is and how we might avoid that when trying to determine whether or not to make a big change in our work or even in our personal lives. No, absolutely. Let me um, 
Let me tie in ambiguity aversion with what we talked about before with gender mm-hmm. pay gap. And, and that will kind of resonate hopefully with people. So about five, 10 years ago, I started a firm and I was putting out a job advertisement to hire a bunch of people. And one job advertisement said wages are negotiable. And then the typical job advertisement. The other job advertisement was identical, except it took out the sentence, wages are negotiable. Other than that, they were identical. Here's what happens. In the one where it says wages are negotiable, women negotiated as much as men. And they did a really good job in negotiating their wages. But when I took that sentence out of the advertisement, women then shied away from negotiating And the ones who negotiated the most were low quality men. Okay, now you can say, well, wait, what's going on here? The second one that did not have the sentence in it, wages are negotiable. Women viewed that as an ambiguous environment. They weren't sure whether they should negotiate or not. So they ended up not negotiating. That's ambiguity aversion. Anytime you have a setting, where you're not sure about how you should act or what you should do, you tend to fall back on social norms. Mm -hmm. And these women were falling back on the norm of, well, if you're a woman, you were taught you should be ladylike and you should negotiate. That's a crazy bad norm from decades ago, but yet they were following that because that's what society has taught them. So we must always understand That if we're in a setting with ambiguity, and that's when you really don't know the probabilities, you really don't know how you should behave, certain types of people, in effect, humans, tend to be very ambiguity averse. And then they fall back and say, well, I should do what the social norm tells me to do. And a lot of times you see this in scouting, for example, You, you have things like, If somebody early on says this is a 10 or nine and a half or or such, you might have scouts following up on that and being less likely, like bandwagon jumping, right? Bandwagon Mm -hmm. bias or being less likely to go against what some authoritative figure has said before. Because let's face it, scouting, it's ambiguous. And a lot of times it's your tastes and preferences. You're not sure. You're putting your reputation on the line. This takes a special person to do that. And we have to understand that in these types of environments, humans as a species tend to be ambiguity averse. And some people, like women versus men, are more averse than than others. And some men, of course, are more averse than other men as well. So you mentioned previous to our uh, conversation here, you mentioned a longstanding interest in collecting baseball cards. I guess you yeah. said you still collect yeah. and you've done quite a bit of research on the baseball card market. And I, I know I have many listeners and readers who do collect. I do not. I did as a kid. I do not any longer. Um, I do think I have some somewhere in the house that are absolutely worthless at this point from the <laughs> 80s. I just got in at the wrong time. So, you got in, in the I, early 90s. Yes. Right. When the market was just saturated. Exactly. I would love to hear more about uh, the research that you've done and, and maybe anything particularly special in your collection. No, no, absolutely. So look, I started collecting in the late 70s. Mm-hmm. I would mow grass and I would take my money down to the local PDQ and buy the baseball cards. 
uh, shovel snow. I was raised in Sun Prairie, Wisconsin. So same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, late eighties, I started to do field experiments at baseball card shows. So a lot of your listeners may have seen me and maybe at least one of my experimental subjects over the years in, I, in these baseball card conventions, I'm always at the national, I'm at the various large shows. So my own research, I've looked at how people negotiate. Um, why do women shy away from bargaining? I look at discrimination in these markets. I, I look at not only are baseball card prices themselves showing discrimination, but I look at whether dealers discriminate against customers, whether they're male, female, or black or white or brown or whatever. I've also explored recent price run-ups. So a lot of your listeners might be might have been very happy a few years ago, but more recently things have kind of come down back down to earth. I would mm-hmm. I would say. Um, I think in general, though, baseball cards are a great form of both consumption investment. And what I mean by that is you buy it, you get to look at it. It's like a fine piece of art. So you're mm-hmm. not only getting an investment grade product here, but you're also getting a bit of Americana mm-hmm. and, and you're getting something of your boyhood dreams captured in one picture. Um, now, when you think about investment, I, I'm less optimistic about the recent stuff because I'm not a believer in manufactured scarcity. And I think once you have manufactured scarcity, it's a difficult place to return from. But when I look at the older cards, now I'm thinking about, let's say, from the 10s to the early 80s. I think these there, there are many points in there where you can get a an investment grade card that helps you diversify your portfolio. And it also gives you a little bit of Americana. I have uh, a lot of very fond memories of collecting cards before I realized like collecting cards just with friends, right? Yep. I'm probably just a touch younger than you are. So early 80s, I remember the 81, 82, collecting them. And we just destroyed those things. <laughs> you put those them would have been worth spot. something. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> there goes a Cal Ripken rookie card from yep. 82 in your bike Yes. Spot. Ricky yep. Henderson, 1980 tops. <laughs> yeah, we would write on them. We were trading them. We would, I forgot what it was called, but we would flip them. And based on how they landed, exactly. you would get both cards or neither cards. Still remember my friend Sean explaining that to me. God, I must have been <laughs> six or seven, maybe. And yeah, those were all worth something. By the time it was like, no, you should shouldn't destroy these things. It was too late. Was All too the late. good ones were gone. I think somewhere I have a Ripken rookie card that's not in great shape. It's pretty good enough that I stopped. I, ca- I was like, I'll hang on to that. Yeah. It's not, unfortunately, it's not in mint condition. I think it's the one with him and George Bell, maybe? One of those like rated rookies or so, you know, they would, yeah, they would, yeah. they would have three prospects. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. I that would was remember an 82 Tops card that had a panel of three. Yeah. Um, it was like. Um, Imagine who that third guy was. That yeah. poor guy is just, nope, nope. <laughs> Right, I yeah. never stood a chance. The kind of the only good panel card that has two would be Molitor and Trammel '78 rookie Ooh, card. So that has that's pretty good. Yeah, that's that's really good, right? Uh, yeah, two great players there. Yeah, yep. Now that's uh, and I remember the the it was almost like a, a like a religious contest. Are you a Tops kid? Are you a Fleer kid? Are you a Don Russ kid? <laughs> Too old for Upper Deck and some of the other later brands. But I was like, what the hell is Don Russ? I just was Tops because I think my parents, that's what they first got me. So therefore, that was my brand. Exactly. I don't have any other reason. But then we would argue like, this one looks better. This one's 
funnier on the back, or this one has better gum. Pro tip, <laughs> the gum all sucked. Whichever ones had gum, sucked. it was all terrible. Yes. <laughs> there was a lost opportunity there. Somebody had put slightly better gum in there, they could have just owned the market. I'm still convinced. I guess those days are long behind us. The fun part now is buying one of those old boxes and then trying to eat the gum. Oh, from the God. late seventies. That's a dare that I do with my kids these days. I say you can open the pack of cards, but you have to eat the gum. The gum, and you, you can get oh, the contents God. too. I'm surprised you don't take it out. It just doesn't go like some some, of it you know, does. some, some sarcophagus. Of it oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the eighty-one golf, the old eighty-one uh-huh. Donruss golf with with Jack Nicholas's rookie. Those tend to be powder. You're right. Yes. Oh, I bet. I bet. I wouldn't. Uh, should send it out for like mass spectrometry to like chemically analyze what's in it. nothing good. Eight <laughs> things that are currently illegal, not approved for human consumption anymore. Exactly. My guest today has been Professor John List of the University of Chicago's Economics Department and the author of the new book, The Voltage Effect, How to Make Good Ideas Great and Great Ideas Scale. Professor List, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, and I can't wait to come back, Keith. That's all for this week's show. Thanks so much for listening. Stay safe.